0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
1: The Greek philosopher Plato is credited with saying necessity is the mother of invention. In the age of COVID-19, we have witnessed rapid responses to the challenges presented by the pandemic that are reminiscent of the age of innovation sparked by World War II. Here is CBS correspondent, Charlie Dagon.
0: World War II saw an explosion of inventions and innovations. Hitler's last terror weapon Like long range guided check. missiles, which helped launch the era of space exploration. We and we have liftoff at 213. The jet engine, which revolutionized commercial aviation. And radar. Revealed to the world after years of secrecy. Which came this of age in the early 1940s. But that period also introduced the modern ballpoint pen and superglue, everyday objects you'd find in your home today. Sometimes complicated situations call for simple solutions, like dividing screens in restaurants, plexiglass cubicles for the beach, and mobile barriers on car assembly lines. But there have also been
1: some interesting high tech advancements in the battle against the coronavirus.
0: How about a Chinese-designed antivirus bodysuit? Or this thermal imaging smart helmet deployed in Dubai, straight out of RoboCop on the hunt for people running a temperature, a symptom of COVID-19?
1: Hello, I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. Today, we'll be examining the innovations and adaptations we've embraced in our continuing fight against COVID-19 on America Change Forever. The video conferencing platform Zoom predated the pandemic by several years, but widespread use of the company's service skyrocketed when workplace closures forced the majority of employees in America to work from home. Iaz Akhtar is a senior editor at CNET who works tenaciously to make technology work for him so that he can live a life of leisure. I as is also the host of the radio feature NetPix, which is distributed by the CBS Audio Network. After over a year of this pandemic, there are a lot of people obviously working remotely. 300 million people per day around the world are now using Zoom every day. So how did Zoom handle its growth spurt and did it have problems keeping up along the way?
2: You know, what Zoom did is that they, they invested in a lot of servers. When the, the amount of server load increased, they increased the amount of servers. They also partnered up with Microsoft and Amazon, not really partnered up so much as they are clients of Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, and those are really robust. So when there'd be all the demand for all this video conferencing, their service would stay up. On top of that, they've added a lot more employees they now employ over 2000 people in many many offices so they've invested in hardware and in people to make sure that they can handle this increased demand
1: i'm just i'm fascinated by zoom only because of how its emergence i guess you could say so it, was this a company that before the pandemic was struggling to become relevant
2: You know, I was reading up about the company, and it turns out they had a pretty good user base from their inception. It turns out, so here's how the story of Zoom shakes out. The creator of Zoom, or at least one of the co-founders, was one of the co-founders of Webex, and that product got bought by Cisco. And this man's name is Eric Yuan, and he got frustrated with how Cisco was treating this product. So he decided he was going to leave. He took 40 or so engineers with him to this new company, Zoom. And their whole thing was to basically build the best video conferencing product possible. So they have had clients in the past. They've had millions and millions. And obviously, this has grown by leaps and bounds over, over the past year. And they are just dead set on this one particular product. Because you look at Cisco, they got networking, and you got conferencing, and they have hardware, a whole bunch of other products. you got all these other companies, and they are jack of all trades. Zoom's main thing, their only business, is video conferencing and conferencing in general.
1: So so, so they specialize in web conferencing. That's their thing. And as a result, they've been able to double their market share uh, from 26% in 2019 to 49% in 2020. So, so what do you think explains Zoom's dominance in the market?
2: Like I was talking about before with Microsoft and Google, we have, we have all of these competitors and video conferencing to them is more of a add on to other services. Teams, Microsoft Teams, is really well integrated with something like Office three sixty five. So if you want to do collaborative meetings on documents or Excel sheets or PowerPoint presentations, this conferencing tool is really good in in conjunction with the Office products. When it comes to Zoom, they are more flexible. You're not necessarily stuck in the world of Microsoft. They do have a lot of third party integrations. So if you wanted to work with a different online service, you had that option with Zoom. So Zoom had this ease of entry. you just To sign up, it's a free account. You can sign in with a Google account. You can sign in with a Facebook account. You don't necessarily need to sign up for a Microsoft one. There's also the, the free-to-use version. And when they first were being used like crazy in, in March of last year, they had a 40-minute cap for their free service, which they eventually dropped for people who were using the free services because they realized, look, people are going to use the product. We're going to open it up. So instead of acting greedy because... Zoom realized and the reason why they had a 40-minute window on the free service was the optimum time they found was 45 minutes was the optimum amount of time for a meeting. So that's when they would start charging you. But they decided to drop that. So they had a very consumer-friendly and user-friendly approach when it came to how do you use the product? Are you going to, use, are you going to take my money? It's like, no. We want you to enjoy this. Essentially, a lot of us users, all of us who've used Zoom, have become beta testers and provided tons of feedback, and they've done a lot of work to improve their product over the past year.
1: I'm just curious if Zoom will survive beyond the pandemic.
2: You know, I think when it comes to the pandemic and the world after this, I think that people will get have gotten very used to video conferencing in general. Whether it's using Microsoft Teams, Google Hangouts, Google Meets, whatever products they they come up with and Zoom as well, there are things you can do in a video conference that you just cannot do on a conference call, right? If you want to do a, sh- a screen share, you're basically asking everybody on the phone, "Hey, can everybody call something up?" There's also the sense of making the teams feel more connected because you are seeing people that you might not have seen. Like in my company, our teams are spread out all over the country. So to see everybody rejoining at least in a meeting, I think this is something that is going to be the new normal in the future. How often are we going to have these meetings? Hopefully nowhere near the amount uh, we currently have. I know I have at least like at least two a day. So I'm sure people have it much worse than I do. So I'm thinking that video conferencing is here to stay and Zoom is going to probably, probably will do well. The question is whether they get too greedy. Will they drive away people? Will they do anything to make their software experience worse? Because in general, the difficulty to switch from one product to the other is really simple, right? You just sign up for a new account and you send everybody to Microsoft. You send everybody to Google or some other company that could pop up tomorrow.
1: It's always good to be first, right? And and there is this brand loyalty thing. And I think right now, you know, Zoom is in a place where they just make it so easy to... to link up with anyone online.
2: Yeah, they definitely make it very simple. You just need a simple link and you can also join in with a phone number. Basically, there's very few reasons that you can miss a meeting. But I'll give you a bit of a personal story. My company started off with Google Meet and we were really used to it and we liked it and we thought this was great. And then we were forced to move to Zoom. And a lot of us were like, oh, this is going to be awful. And we turned out, you know, it turns out that Zoom is pretty good for a lot of things. I will say the number one thing I miss about google meet was that it had a closed captioning function built in i believe zoom does have that somewhere if you pay a little extra but that to me kind of alleviated some of the stress of a zoom meeting like i could look back and check what was being said in case the apartment buzzer went off or my kitchen has decided to go on fire or whatever else happens in my home
1: do you have tips for our listeners about ways that they can enhance how they interact remotely
2: Absolutely. So I'm a video guy and this thing, I, I cannot stress this enough. If you're going to be on a Zoom meeting, ha- don't be in front of a big window. Make sure you're lit properly so people can see you because humans are always looking for visual cues. If you're obscured, it's really hard to see that. When it comes to microphones, make sure you're muted to start with because if you need to say something, unmute and go ahead because those are really distracting. It's, it's confusing. It also moves the meetings in directions people usually don't want. That's just on the basic etiquette side on that the mute button is your friend. Don't forget that. And I will say when it comes to Zoom meetings, don't feel like you need to take the meeting with you wherever you go. You wouldn't do that in real life. We've heard the anecdotes where people are like, oh, we heard you in the bathroom. <laughs> don't take your computer with you. Don't take your phone with you. Just please leave it alone. If you if you excuse yourself like you would a regular meeting, it's fine. Don't feel the need just because you're remote that you must stay on every meeting because that's just... It's a, it's a terrible expectation, and it should not be expected of any human being that's on a meeting at any time. Ah, uh, yes, Akhtar. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was fun.
3: You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
1: Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begay, filling in for Gil Gross. Today, we're talking about innovations in the age of the pandemic. At the heart of our campaign to battle COVID-19, has been the rapid development and deployment of vaccines at record-breaking speeds. Here with us now is Michelle McMurray-Heath, a medical doctor, immunologist, policymaker, and chief executive officer for the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Bio is the largest trade organization in the world that represents the biotech industry. Michelle, thanks for being with us.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: So there are three vaccines produced by members of Bio that are currently approved for use in the United States against COVID-19. Let's go through what they are, how they work, and how they're different.
4: Yes. Well, it's been so exciting to see how our member companies have really rallied to this call. Um there are over 190 COVID vaccines that have been um, started in the development process over the course of this last year, and it's exciting to see the first of them cross the finish line. So currently in the U.S., as you mentioned, we've got three. We've got um, two mRNA-based vaccines um, from Pfizer and Moderna and an adenovirus-based vaccine from J&J. And they basically all use the over 100-year-old technology behind vaccines, which is can we deliver a subunit or a little portion of the virus that we're trying to stop into the human body so that the human body can learn to recognize that subunit and then be prepared to fight the whole virus when it eventually encounters it. Where they differ is really how they deliver that building block, how they get that subunit into the body. The DNA-based vaccines or the adenovirus-based vaccines really give you the code for building that Um, subunit and deliver that gene material into the human body and let the human body then produce the mRNA middle step and then the actual protein, which is that subunit at the end. The mRNA vaccines, that is the Pfizer and Moderna, actually skip that first DNA step and deliver that messenger RNA, that middle step, straight into the body so that the body can make the protein building block on its own. But both of them end up with that protein at your immune system's disposal so that your immune system can be prepared for the future.
1: That's really interesting. And so uh, mRNA has been around for decades, uh, but the vaccines developed for COVID-19 are the first ones to be approved for use on humans. Is that correct?
4: It is. And you know what's so interesting is mRNA is incredibly powerful in that Every gene in your body uses mRNA as a middle step to making proteins or to make your body's material. But it's, it's notoriously unstable. So mRNA is something that you can see degrade before your eyes in the lab. It, it usually comes and goes very fast. And so it has taken until now to have the technology to keep mRNA stable enough to be the delivery vehicle. Um, into the body, so that's what's new is our ability to keep messenger RNA stable enough to deliver the instructions into the body. the body turns that into the protein or the subunit block and then you're ready to go
1: It really is remarkable that these three vaccines have set a record for the speed of development. It's like when Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. We've 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 sort of crossed this threshold that no one was able to cross before. So, how was it possible for the members of Bio to accelerate this process of developing these much-needed vaccines?
4: Hmm. Well, that's a, it's such an interesting question because it's a a mixture of things that were very specific to the COVID response, combined with an ongoing effort over decades. So, I mentioned that mRNA is new as a vaccine vehicle, but the, bit, the effort or the race to try to figure out how to stabilize mRNA and make it a vaccine um, technology or a platform has been underway for 30 years. So scientists have been working for decades to try to figure out how we turn this into a faster and easier way to make vaccines. So COVID definitely built upon that long ongoing tradition of building up that scientific understanding to be able to get here. But at the same time, what we witnessed last year is an unprecedented level of collaboration and coordination with federal regulators, federal science agencies, our companies, and the nonprofit uh, sectors to really make sure we were working at our most optimal speed. So you saw companies forming partnerships at a rate you've never seen before you saw people sharing scientific information and data internationally and among each other within the U.S. In a, in a way that really, really spread sped up the development process. You combine that with the fact that we saw flexibility from, from agencies like the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the National Institutes of Health to really help and facilitate that work and make sure that we were getting the assurances of safety and effectiveness that are so so important but getting them as quickly and as efficiently as possible and that all of those factors combined resulted in the speed that you saw but we're we're not satisfied with that 12 month turnaround you know we saw a reduction in the time to produce a vaccine from 4 years which was a previous record to 12 months in this case but some of the organizations at the global level are now calling for a 100 day vaccine development process So we want to make sure that the next time we face an unknown virus, we're able to turn around an answer in as little as 100 days.
1: Is that feasible? Is it possible? Uh, Could it become a reality? And is this the process that we've seen with the development of vaccines around COVID-19 an example of how it is possible?
4: Well, it's certainly possible. I mean, we're definitely learning how to do the critical steps much more robustly and much more quickly. And so while we're not there yet, we don't have the ability to produce 100-day vaccines from protein identification within the virus to um, shots in arms. It is now within reach, and it seems completely reasonable. If you'd asked me 12 months ago, can you produce a vaccine in 100 days, I would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> but now it's we definitely know it's possible, and it's just a question of maintaining our commitment to the goal and making sure that we keep excellence in both the science and the way we conduct it.
1: And in the last few months, uh, I think it's fair to say that the uh, Biden administration has made huge strides in getting these shots in arms. However, if you're watching the news, our listeners might think, well, they've been getting shots in arms, but we've seen this recent increase in the number of COVID cases. So does that prove that there's still a long way to go here? And, and, And what do you say to people who are perhaps still hesitant to get the vaccine?
4: Mm. Well, it, it proves what we have long known, which is that the science is in a race against um, human nature and human behavior. Um, so it's really been so difficult, we all know this, to adhere to so many of the public health guidelines, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, um, not, um, not traveling, um, cutting down on public gatherings, not um, necessarily gathering indoors at, in places like restaurants, etc., it's been challenging, not just on our our social lives and our families, but also on our economies to adhere to all of those guidelines. And so we're seeing slippage, um, and the slippage definitely always results in an increase of cases. I think that increase has been blunted by the amazing distribution that we've seen of COVID vaccines, particularly in the U.S.
1: Well, but there is another issue here. How do you get these vaccines to harder reach, harder to reach? areas of the world, if you will? Uh, and why is that so important?
4: Oh, because with COVID, like with so many other infectious diseases, we are not safe till everyone is safe. And so getting the vaccine out, not just within the U.S., but to ev- all far reaches of the world is also critically important. You know, you mentioned hesitancy, and hesitancy has been a large um, issue to deal with in the distribution of the vaccine, but we're seeing it really um, ebb, it's really reducing in many populations, and that's fantastic news. People are now mostly excited and eager to get the vaccine, although there are um, still some important subgroups that are are still uh, have questions, and we need to be there answering their questions as patiently as and as completely as possible. But if you look at the global rise of the COVID variants in areas like Brazil where we haven't seen good um, COVID vaccine distribution, it's clear that we need to get the vaccine out to absolutely every quarter of the world. And let me just add, the COVID variants are nothing unusual. Every virus evolves as it you know, spreads around the world and, and goes through different populations of people. It's the reason we take a flu vaccine every year. It's not because the flu vaccine you had last year has stopped working. It's because influenza is constantly evolving and new variants are emerging. And so you take a new vaccine or a booster to make sure that you're prepared for those new variants as well. And that's probably the reality we are going to be living into with COVID in the near future. Some of our vaccine manufacturers, our member companies are already working on new versions of the vaccine to help better prepare people for the variants. But for right now, it looks as though the vaccines we have in use are serving us quite well, not only for the historic COVID, but also for the variants that are starting to emerge.
1: As someone who spent uh, the first part of his life uh, in Africa, several different countries in Africa. I wonder, is the continent of Africa seeing uh, the distribution of the vaccines at this time?
4: They are, but not at the level that is needed. We have to do more and we have to do better. I mean, just the fact that we've seen an emergence of a South African variant that is at least blunting some of the responses to um Uh, at least one or two of the vaccines that are out there tells us that it's so important for us not to forget any part of the world when we're talking about um, equitable distribution of COVID vaccines. We have to make sure that the entire globe is covered.
1: Coming up, we'll have more with Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO of Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization.
4: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome back to America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Begays filling in for Gil Gross. We're going to resume our conversation with Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Michelle, earlier this year, Bio released its plan for 100 days of innovation. Tell us about the organization's goals for those 100 days.
4: Oh, yes. Well, it was really exciting. And the three key areas that um, Bio focused on are also areas that the administration has been focused on as well. And so we really called on the administration, one, to do everything we could to combat COVID. That was Let's try to speed the distribution of the vaccine, not just to those first one or two priority categories, but to all quarters of the US. And we're now seeing that with, um, you know, the president announcing this week that he hopes by April 19th, all states will make the COVID vaccine available to absolutely everyone in their populations. Um, We asked for making sure that there's, you know, speedy approval and consideration of not just COVID vaccines, but COVID therapeutics as they're going through. the regulatory process and we're continuing to see that happening at a very rapid clip. And then finally we for COVID, we actually also asked that we do more to help the states in providing coverage for not just COVID vaccines, um, which are free to all Americans right now, but also for COVID therapeutics and diagnostics. So that many states have been facing growing Medicaid roles with the rising rates of unemployment. And we wanted to make sure that while Medicaid costs are typically split between the states and the federal government, that when it came to caring for people with COVID, that the federal government really increased their contribution so that states would have the resources necessary to provide this wider breadth of care. And that's exactly what we saw included in the COVID Recovery Act. So we're very um, encouraged by that progress. We also had a, um, a, a very strong emphasis on climate change, um, we at Bio not just represent companies in the biopharma space, but also companies that are based in biotechnology that um, also pr- produce um, uh, biofuels and other efforts that will help us fight um, climate change. And so we've been so gratified to see that the administration has really focused on climate. And while the climate bill is still to come, we have early signs that they're going to be taking a lot of um promising steps to make sure that that is not a threat that we face in the future. And then our third category was really around equity and making sure that we are paying a lot of attention to equitable access to not just COVID vaccines and therapeutics, but biopharmaceuticals and um, broader healthcare in, in general. And it's been really reassuring to see some early steps in that direction. Although there's farther to go, I think we're going to see wider access um, and broader coverage for individuals that need access to cutting-edge therapies.
1: How imminent do you believe another different pandemic is and why?
4: Well, it's a very hard question to answer. We're definitely vulnerable, perhaps almost as vulnerable as we were at the start of of the COVID pandemic. Um, We still don't have a a large emphasis on surveillance for new um, emerging pathogens, We don't have a a really robust ecosystem to deal with infectious diseases. It's an area that has been neglected um, for decades, and so we're just building back up that muscle, but we aren't where where we need to be or where we should be. But we're definitely more alert, and that attention is definitely valuable because it means that we'll be on our guard going forward, and that's at least one step in the right direction. But we need to do everything we can to make sure that infectious disease research and preventing the spread of emerging pathogens is something that we're incredibly dedicated to and vigilant about. We also have to control climate change because a lot of these emerging pathogens and, and new pandemics come from the erosion of natural habitats um, for a lot of our species. And so they they interact many much more frequently and much more intimately with, with human cities, And that often leads to the emergence of these new pandemics. So this is a multifaceted problem. I think we're a lot more aware of it today than we were this time last year. But we have to not forget and we have to stay committed going forward.
1: Where do you think this pandemic falls in history in terms of how devastating these pandemics can be?
4: Hmm. I hope that it's the most devastating one we will ever see because it has been Heartbreakingly devastating. I never in my lifetime thought I would see this type of pandemic. Although, you know, the possibility was always out there. I think many scientists and and biotechnologists really thought it was somewhat remote. I think we all know a lot differently now. But I hope that this is the worst of it, and from here on, we'll either see much milder new emerging pathogens, or we'll be much better prepared uh, for any more dangerous ones that come our way
1: that is the hope michelle mcmurray heath thank you very much for your time michelle mcmurray heath is a medical doctor immunologist policymaker and chief executive officer for the biotechnology innovation organization thanks for being here
4: thank you for having me
1: this is america change forever from the cbs audio network
3: Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
1: For many people, going to work meant getting dressed up. Business attire had become so much a part of our culture that you would see it on invitations for social events outside of the workplace. But with so many of us now working from home, the new business attire can now mean sweatpants and a t-shirt. Here to help us sort out the innovations in fashion during the pandemic and beyond, are Laurel Panton, Style Director at InStyle Fashion Home and Creative Partnerships, and Erica Metzger, who is the Beauty and Fashion Director at Better Homes and Gardens Magazine. So Erica, what, what is the future of business office attire given that we're you know almost exactly a year into this pandemic and it obviously will continue, but it's changed things. It's changed how we, we dress around the office if we go into the office.
3: I think we're at the point in our fashion evolution during the pandemic where there's a lot of excitement to get dressed up again and to be going out as like restrictions lift. Um, but I think people are feeling a lot of like confusion on how to kind of, you know, um, approach our office wear, especially since people who've been working from home, especially like 80% of our closet, maybe they haven't like touched in the past year. So there's kind of this vibe of like relearning how to get dressed for work. It reminds me of like when you're on summer break and back in school and it's like, you have to figure out that back to school outfit for the first day of school. Like I'm, I, I feel I feel like it's a similar kind of, um, you know, uh, mindset. But I, I, I would just say like one thing, um the overall trend i think that there's going to be a lot of things but the one i'll speak to i think is like this idea of like comfort is still going to be a really big priority for people while we still want to be like polished and put together um i think making sure our clothes still feel really comfortable is going to be like a key driving force in our like purchases just moving forward
1: and laurel do you agree with that i know that when i have to go into the office i th- when i have to put on a tie I feel like I'm in a straitjacket, to be quite honest. It just feels so restrictive. So do, do you agree with what Erica is saying?
5: Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree about the urge to get dressed again. I think um, we're seeing a lot of excitement about putting on real clothes and playing with fashion, um, like expressing yourself in that way again. Um, I think that there's going to be. A lot of, like I said, a lot of excitement around that, but pretty quickly I think that the novelty is going to wear off again, just like the novelty of wearing sweatpants every day has worn off.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I like wearing sweatpants, don't you? I mean, it's... I hate it. It's
5: <laughs> it, Really? Yeah. It's, it's
1: sort of liberating, isn't it? I mean, I it? I mean per, come on. Per,
5: speaking for myself, per, at first I, I didn't mind it, Um, but I think not having any opportunity to pull myself together and present, you know, present something to the world that I feel good about after a year has sort of started to take a toll on me. I've um, made it a point to get dressed, even like at least putting on jeans um, when I'm working at home. So yeah, I mean, maybe people are going to fall into two camps Working from home, probably still people will be comfortable. But the opportunities that you do have, assuming that people aren't going into the office every single day anymore, um, because my guess is that the way we work completely is going to change with not going in every day. On the end days, people will be willing to put in a little extra effort and excited to do that, at least for a little while.
4: Well,
1: you know, aren't uh, whatever you choose to wear, isn't it all just getting to be more comfortable and more fashionable?
3: I mean, if I can answer this one, Jeff, just to jump in as, um, as someone who has collected a lot of fun sweatsuits over the, (laughs) over the last year, that's probably been my most common kind of like purchase. I do feel like I totally get that the not wanting to like look sloppy and like you rolled out of bed anymore. I do think because the sweatsuits have become like really cool and they look more put together and more intentional, especially like when they're like, it's a monochromatic top and bottom. So I do feel like there's room for um, these like kind of casual, more like athleisure looks to make their way into the office. And we kind of saw that like before the pandemic, you know, wearing sneakers to the office and in some environments, you know, had become like office appropriate. So I think maybe like like the matching, you know, um, uh, uh, like, you know, sweatpants or sweatsuit is going to be kind of like a a new iteration of that.
1: I'm wondering about that because haven't companies like Lululemon, done well like while companies like brooks brothers have had some real struggles
5: my perspective on it is like you know fashion is so cyclical things, the pendulum swings really far in one direction and back in the other. And I do think that it will be nice for everyone if it settles somewhere in the middle between having the option to really get dressed up or if your job doesn't require it and you're not forced to be in a suit and tie every day, having the option to wear, you know, jeans and a nice sweatshirt. With the pendulum swing, we've been so far in the casual world. And yes, there are a lot of nice matching sweatsuits. And I think it's great for people to have the choice. Um, speaking from what we've seen and from like myself personally, I think at least initially going back, there's going to be a feeling of like back to school, put on like, what are you going to wear for your first day back in the office? Kind of like getting a little extra dressed. If, if this all leads to people having more flexibility and more choice with what they wear to the office, in addition to where they work and when, that is a possible silver lining to the whole situation, if that can even be said. But it's, it's difficult, obviously, to speak for everyone. But I think that there is going to be an excitement about getting dressed again.
3: And, and Jeff, I do think like with the retailers that are kind of doing really well at the moment... Um, as we are kind of looking for more, you know, professional wear, I think I think we will kind of still be looking for pieces because we got used to like you know a really comfortable t-shirt, or we might be like incorporating some of the you know like a top from Lululemon in our regular kind of workwear. So I, I think those pieces are going to things that maybe we would have saved just for like workouts or hanging out. They'll feel a little more versatile, and we'll wear them with like you know a cardigan, a dressy blazer, or they'll just be part of our working wardrobe.
1: And so as let's go back a little, if 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 you'll allow me to the beginning of the pandemic, did, did you expect things to evolve the way they have, Laurel? Uh,
5: no, I did not. I had a baby like a week and a half before everything shut down. So I was kind of underwater. And I just thought this is going to be something that we're dealing with through the end of April. And then everything's going to start going back to normal. So I definitely didn't foresee any of this happening,
1: Erica. What about you? In in terms of the the fashion trends and how things have evolved, did did you see a sea change coming?
3: I mean, I feel like as I can relate to what Laurel's saying. As a, I've got two young kids with remote learning and all of that. I think the focus, to be honest with you, as far as like fashion, kind of did take a backseat, especially since you know I did I do have the opportunity to work from home and. I just, I noticed something that I thought was, has been interesting. I was somebody who used um, like a, a fashion rental service, like a Rent the Runway. That was like kind of my go-to just to kind of rotate new pieces into my wardrobe and just feel really like, you know, stylish, but not kind of committing to anything. I wasn't surprised at all to see that kind of business has been evolving uh, quite a bit and, and having some challenges there. So changes like that didn't, I kind of expected because I kind of immediately paused my, paused my subscription because I thought, oh, I don't really need, I don't need this. It was kind of like, what do I need? How am I going to survive? So I, I kind of feel like it wasn't top priority. And now that things feel a little bit, now we're in like better place in many ways. It It is exciting to kind of like f- think about shopping again. I'm back in that headspace.
5: <laughs> I agree. I think for so long during this experience, like it just felt not inappropriate, but like there was no opportunity to think about anything as, as minor as what you're going to wear day to day when everything is so up in the air and seemingly so awful. Um, So I do get a sense that like, now that things are starting to open up and things are relaxing, people are able to see their friends again, go back to the office and see their coworkers, that it just feels really good to indulge a little bit in, um, if not buying new clothes, then wearing things that have been set aside for over a year.
1: We're gonna hear more from Laurel Patton, Style Director at InStyle Fashion Home and Creative Partnerships. And Erica Metzger, the beauty and fashion director at Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Right after this,
3: you're listening to America Changed Forever from the
0: CBS Audio Network. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
4: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
0: Oh, burger time.
3: Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
1: We return with Erica Metzger, the beauty and fashion director at Better Homes and Gardens Magazine, and Laurel Panton, style director at InStyle Fashion Home and Creative Partnerships. Laurel, there used to be rules about what to wear and when to wear it. It seems like nowadays in this pandemic and post-pandemic world, there are no more rules.
5: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it var- it's industry by industry, but I, I think that there is quite a bit of that. to to what I was saying earlier, like if your company still requires you to wear a suit and tie, you're going to have to wear a suit and tie regardless. But if this opens up some flexibility in terms of what's considered appropriate and not appropriate, um, then I think that's great.
3: And I think too, Jeff, um, something just I've I've um, noticed myself, like in as, a, as an editor who has to do a ton of like Zoom calls, And you see like other editors pop up and through the evolution of um, the pandemic, it's been interesting to see like what people, you know, when they have their cameras on, sometimes I've gone into these meetings and I felt overdressed just by wearing, you know, earlier, like putting on my blazer or like something that felt like more structured when everyone else is being way more casual. Again, it goes back to what Laurel was saying that like kind of appropriate kind of feeling right now. I do feel like it's like, I think people are kind of ready to, they feel like it's okay to be a little bit dressed to to kind of embrace style and fashion. And, and I like, like, especially if you're still at home and you want like pieces that still feel comfortable, but look a little elevated. I think it's kind of like picking this, like if it's a T, if you love wearing t-shirts, it's like just stepping it up a little bit, like get a silk t-shirt that you can, you can hang wash and hang, um, hang dry because I think people kind of aren't into dry cleaning at the moment. That's just another layer of, of extra work and, you know, higher maintenance and look, you know, look for interesting details, look for a color, look for something that's fun. That makes you kind of excited to get dressed in the morning. That would be my biggest piece of advice.
1: That is good advice. And one area of style that is uniquely pandemic. However, it's going to be with us for a while. uh, I think are masks and I went into the studio recently and I noticed that one of my coworkers had a mask that matched a blouse I thought, okay, now I'm going to have to start coordinating masks with the colors that I'm wearing. <laughs> is that a thing too? I think for
5: sure it is. It's been really amazing seeing how many fashion brands have redirected their efforts into producing masks over the past year and a lot of them are doing things like using surplus fabrics so that it's um super sustainable. I think that it's been incredible to see everyone redirecting their efforts that way. And I also think it's nice that people have such a range of available masks. I'm still stunned when I think back on how quickly we went from being told that we should wear masks and then there were suddenly billions of options on the market. Um, I think anything that makes wearing a mask easier and more fun and gets more people to comply great and I think using it as something to express your personal style even better
1: Laurel Panton, Style Director at InStyle Fashion Home and Creative Partnerships and Erica Metzger, the Beauty and Fashion Director at Better Homes and Gardens Magazine Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of America Change Forever Next week we'll focus on gun control, gun rights debate and these mass shootings ACF is produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Jeff Begay's